before we get to this excellent interview, uh, we would like to invite you to check out patreon.com slash consensus unreality. Um, it's where we release most of our episodes. Uh, our full archive is hosted there and follow-ups to our interviews. So check out patreon.com slash consensus unreality for just five bucks a month. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. All right, welcome to another episode of Consensus on Reality. Uh, today we're joined by Andy Sharp, the writer and multimedia artist behind the English Heretic uh, Project, uh, the author of the English Heretic Collection, and recently the Astral Geographic, the Watkins Guide to the Occult World. And we're very pleased to have him on here today. Thanks for joining us, Andy. How's it going? Uh, thanks, yeah, thanks for having us. Oh, it's going great, yeah, yeah. Um... Just right. I'll just to sort of finish off with the, the first bit. Of, well, the main bit of promotion for the for the new book. So quite a lot of talk. So uh, I think we've got last in public talk in about a week and a half, and then that's it for the rest of the year. So that's good. Get get that done. Yeah. Thanks right, so yeah. much for coming on. Um, we're both uh, big fans of your your books, especially uh, English Heretic Collection. I think I picked up maybe. Um, a year ago or maybe a year or two ago, I don't I forget when, but, um, I was thumbing through it in a bookshop and, uh, I said, English heretic collection. This sounds pretty cool. And then I'm, you know, thumbing through and it's the Cleefoth and Kenneth Grant and, uh, Dr. Who. And I'm like, oh, I need to get this. <laughs> <laughs> so I took it to the counter and the, and the guy at the counter was like, this is a good one. So yeah. Oh, good. That's really good to hear. Where are you based then? Where are you? Um, I'm in Philadelphia, and Ben is in uh, okay. the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. Yeah, Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, I have a bookshop here <laughs> too, so it's got yeah, oh, it's a lot okay. of yeah, um, yeah. So I was I'm reading through the English Heretic Collection a bit, and I, I'm really fascinated by this process of uh, like the black plaques. Could you uh, talk a little bit about this that aspect of your work? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so in, in in the UK, we've got this government quango called English Heritage, or it used to be a government quango. Can't can't quite remember what happened with it. And it's it's it was a it's a sort of government funded body that um, looks after like uh, places of historic interest. Um, you know, a lot of ruins, really, you know, and things like that. They also had this scheme called the Blue Plaque Scheme, where they'd put up these um, kind of ceramic plaques on uh, in locations where famous people had lived or dwelled or something like that. So, you know, uh, there'd be a house in London where, say, someone like Dickens may have lived in the Blue Plaque Scheme. So, yeah, going back for 15, 20 years ago, I was kind of playing with the idea I was actually re releasing records uh, and, uh, in a project called Lost Objects where I'd make these records and then I'd symbolically leave them at the at kind of venues of kind of significance and and, and in actual fact one of the places I, I did one of these Lost Objects was this place called Chisler's Caves where they'd filmed Doctor Who so you know I kind of was playing on sort of uh kind of this idea of kind of like a situationist type thing. But anyway, it sort of developed into 
into uh, like a particular commemoration with this guy called Michael Reeves, who was the director of uh, Witchfinder General. And uh, I kind of got interested in his biography because I, I, at the time I was living in a town called Ipswich in Suffolk, where it turned out that he he was cremated. So I, it was actually my route to work. I was driving past the the cemetery and uh, the crematorium where he'd been cremated. And I sort of thought about, well, maybe I'm picking up on some sort of, you know, re channeling his spirit or something like that. And then I started doing field recordings there and um, and sort of evolved the idea of the lost object into a black plaque, which was... Um, uh, it was a CD recording, and it was it was kind of a pastiche of the blue plaque um, uh, commemorations. And I laid that at the at the uh, it, at the tree that was in the area of the the crematorium that his ashes were spread. So it was done like that. And then I thought it sort of it played around with the idea of like um, subverting English heritage into kind of a cult version, really uh, quite playful reading, and they say like kind of situationist. So black blue plaques became black plaques and sites of uh, heritage became sites of heresy and things like that. And that was kind of, that was the evolution of it really. And so the, the various different blue plaques, the black plaques kind of evolved sort of organically. I'd find some connection or synchronicity that would lead me on to another, another person. So it was always with this kind of sort of concept of rapport with tragic figures or, you know, strange histories and strange biographies really yeah but it was always done with a kind of as i say you know kind of serendipitous and and, and, and rather than go think oh i need to do one for him and him it was kind of an organic process and that's that's kind of the way it worked yeah so that's that's what black packs were mm. yeah that's great i love the uh the way chance comes into that uh, when i was reading through the, the book this and, and the other book as well kind of like how uh these forces of um, chance, place, and time all kind of like converge into this, uh, like this path that, that lays out before you. And so, I, yeah, I really like that approach. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, cause you know, I want to, you know, I'm also interested in magic and occultism, but it's always, you know, it's always really been about driving the creative process. So I'm interested in creative occultism really. And I get, you know, Kenneth Grant was very interested in mm. creative occultism. Yeah. So, so, but living by that sort of kind of dictum that that you know that the creative path and the magical path are quite intertwined that that it feels necessary that the, the the kind of project evolves in a in a magical way rather than in a kind of a way that's divorced from a, a you know kind of all the all the all the things about magic, you know, this synchronicities rather than logic and things like that, associative thinking and things like that. So I think that's that's where the kind of English heretic sort of differs from other sort of projects in 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 the Selm realm when we're you know celebrating Weird Britain and things like that. That actually the the kind of narrative was was always driven by. Uh, I wouldn't say chance, a serendipity, you know, and a magical kind of significance, really. So synchronicity. So yeah, that was yeah. that kind of kind of a unique way that it kind of evolved, really. But that was kind of a way I work, really. You know, um, it's also a way of say, um, subverting the different forms of media you were working in, too, right? Because it's um, comprised of 
music and and sort of like zines, but also the this writing that culminated into the collection. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it was it, it was absolutely a, a kind of um, a, a way of using form and, and playing with form as a conceit, because because the magazine and CD thing was. I mean, a lot of people do it now, but there weren't a lot of people doing this sort of thing back in the day. But my 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 kind of um, my again, it was another subversion. We have in these in 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 this country, we have like uh, and and uh, and they went in the states. Magazines like Myth, Man, Myth, and Magic, and the Unexplained, which were these yeah. parts magazines. And you would typically, and and then like for the first edition of unexplained it came with a flexi disc of like evp recordings and things like that so i was playing on that concept of these kind of magazines that we used to get you know in parts and you'd you'd get like a freebie with it things like that and like the first edition first edition i made these i create these giant boxes like they were called i kind of what they call like sepulchres or something like that and it cost me about 10 quid to ship out and these people got these huge bricks and but by about the seventh h issue this 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 kind of box had filled out and people were going can we have another box I was like, i'm not gonna do that <laughs> so it's kind of all these ludicrous things i was doing with it as well but always at my own expense really <laughs> in a lot of ways i remember this guy once was like oh, i like the box but the clip doesn't quite work can i have a replacement <laughs> <laughs> so again it's like situationism but you know yeah. you know this sort of ludicrous sort of operator sort of you know in a sense like kind of satirizing kind of uh, consumerism as well to a certain degree you know right right and that that reminds me of um like in the states in in the aughts the um the noise scene was kind of this burst and boom and there was like american tapes which is the label of one of the members of wolf eyes and stuff but they had all this uh crazy elaborate packaging like chicken wire cassette tapes and stuff like that <laughs> remember yeah. them yeah, yeah yeah exactly that yeah i mean so yeah you know it's i would say you know it's an art project but it's a kind of creative oh, creative occultism creative research so you but all these things yeah you know how do you deliver things in a way that's meaningful but also you know fun in a way you know and right. uh, and, and but also you know subverting kind of then you know the idea of making a package and a and a thing <laughs> something like that to a certain degree yeah yeah is the is the new book um which is you know it's the watkins guide to the occult world and it's kind of written in this travelogue form is that further experiments in, in this play with with form like the absolutely yeah totally yeah. nailed it there absolutely yeah <laughs> i mean um yeah i mean um so botkins are repeater's parent company and and uh yeah. after repeater put out the anthology and um, their publisher got in touch with me about doing something for them and uh i came up with this idea of doing a travel guide but i i didn't want it to be again i wanted it to be a narrative driven exploration but use form in a particular way so you know like you know like jg ballard was doing with the trossy exhibition you know playing with form and having these condensed yeah, chapters yeah. i thought well you know you can create so so in these chapters are very there's a strong narrative arc to the, the itineraries the, the the travels in there they're meant to be a story they're not meant to be sort of disconnected dots on a on a page you know these are the places to go associated with whatever it was you know it's it's very much curated that trip and it's meant to be read as a as you say as a 
as a book really it, w w but with the conceit of a travel guide so yeah that was that was you know i'm not sure you know i'm not sure whether watkins um wanted me to do that but i wanted <laughs> to do that you know and i, I yeah. you know kind of in the end you know the the, the kind of the, i had you know the they were quite happy in the end with the kind of editorial narratives very little you know it's copy editing and, and things like that but they didn't didn't chop and change any of the itineraries because i you know um because you know as i explained to them why i've done it in a particular way yeah so i'm very pleased with it yeah uh, getting away with it <laughs> yeah getting away with play, you know i mean i i think the perfect example of that in that book for me um you know, it's specifically, it's a story, obviously, we're very interested in, but Crowley and Neuberg, um, the Caronzen working in the desert, but you're pre presenting it in this very compressed form. Um, but it's surprising that there's, it's still extrapolating new novel information, you know, and it's looking at it from a different angle, which is a story that's kind of told often enough where you think that this wouldn't even be possible anymore but i enjoyed that chapter so much and it it had me kind of rethinking the meaning of coronzone in, in general and the meaning of maybe the role that coronzone plays in in synchro mystic um thought and the kind of chasing of coincidence and and the unmanifested and stuff yeah i mean i love i, I love that chapter you know because actually you know as, as you say i've been obsessed with that that particular story in Crowley's life for probably about since, since I was 18. I remember, I think I read, I first read about it in, in, in one of Colin Wilson's biographies. Mm. And it was just the thing that blew my mind really. And it still continued, continues to blow my mind. Um, but actually really approaching it in a, in a kind of quite pure way to begin with for the book, as you say, all these kind of new, New inferences really grew up, you know, this kind of idea that actually it was very progressive. He was almost like um, ahead of his time in, ter in terms of like occult psychogeography uh, psycho and also this kind of like fusion of, of kind of Enochian magic and then taking it out to the desert seems like very experimental. But it, it you know, it, it shows, you know, the power of it. He made a very, very... People criticise Crowley, but that was a very intuitive move, really. You know, so all the imagery of you know, they had this that, that, that ruby topaz, that topaz um, gem that they were scrying with, and obviously it, it kind of coloured the visions as well. So it's that, even that's very interesting. But but you know, kind of digging into as I developed that, you know, uh, you know, thinking about the the kind of not just not just the, the Christian implications of it for Crowley, you know, obviously he's like temptation of St. Anthony and Christ in the de desert, you know. You've also got the kind of uh, Arabian folkloric elements of the Dijin and the ghoul and stuff like that, which obviously are kind of seep into the kind of this, the figure of Corinzon, you know. And, and um, I talked about it at Watkins Bookshop and there was a, an Egyptian guy and he says, yeah, Majun means uh, possessed, mm. means crazy and, and things like that. So, you, you know, I think, you know, I think a lot of these kind of insights are, they are, you know, they're, they're speculative, but they're, they're very cogent. And I really enjoyed that chapter. And also, you know, kind of extrapolating it to stuff like, you know, the cult of Corinzon, you know, the whole way that, Chaos Magic adopted it, and well, Parsons and Chaos Magic, Kenneth Grant, uh, and then looking at you know the outlier in it, 
which is which is very significant i think which is uh, borough city is city's the red night you know and yeah kind of pestilential desert really mm. yeah i like um, that uh that the way you connected burroughs in there um he seems to come up if not like explicitly then uh implicitly a lot in some of the 20th century like later 20th century occult stuff his his ideas do you find that happening a lot like just running into Burroughs? yeah absolutely you know um i think it's underplayed a bit i mean i rem remember reading a, an interview with jg ballard who was very skeptical of the occult he said burroughs wasn't interested in it at all much as i you know admire jg ballard love his work he's completely wrong on that because you know, Burroughs, you know, this, you know, in, in Cities of Red Night, the two detectives are doing like sex magic in order to solve this kind of weird crime with these ginger headed boys getting <laughs> abducted yeah. and decapitated. You know, it's just, it was doing sex magic, you know, it, it, to drive the book. But the really interesting thing from my perspective is, is that, is the, the name, you know, the four names of the, uh, of, of the, of the seven, the seven cities of the Red Night, um, which come from, um, I only found this out in the last two or three years came from the Picatrix. You know, Brian Geisen had taught Burroughs this method of lucid dreaming, which is a ritual called perfect nature. And you meant to recite these four words before going to sleep. And you and when I reread City's Red Night, um, I think the last time I've, I've read it about four times, I read it sort of a decade apart. And every time it, this book's quite alive in a lot of ways. And this whole kind of episode of, of kind of this, this stuff that is quite clearly taken from lucid dreaming and, and, and things like that. So, so yeah, Burroughs was definitely doing magic. And the weird thing was um, I did a talk in Bristol um, uh, and a woman called Liz Williams was running it, who who's, who wrote a really good book on paganism. And I was saying to her, you know, my my kind of entry to, to to occultism was a book called A Magic and Occult Primer by this guy called David Conway, who was a pseudonym for a guy who worked in government and wrote this book that was very famous. And my first, and I, 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 heard, I first heard about this book in a in an interview with Burroughs, who said, if you want to read a good book on magic, read uh, David Conway's uh, Magic and Occult Primer. Anyway, so at this at this talk in Bristol, this says I, I, was, I was explaining to her, and she goes, "Oh, I know <laughs> David Conway very well. I'll give you a copy of his book, my my book, and sign it." And uh, so the weird life life goes in a weird magical circle in lots of ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to ask you too, I'm sure you're, you're, you have to be familiar with the stone tape theory. And I feel like your, um, your work, especially with the English heretic project kind of conjures like a more poetic stone tape theory. Does that resonate with you and Lethbridge's work? Yeah. I mean, that is really interesting. I hadn't really considered it in that way, but there are definite, you know, I think there's a chapter in the new book about about sinister megaliths which is very much stone tape theory and uh, and tying in with kind of nuclear semiotics but that poetic element um i i kind of realized sort of 10 years well when i was actually putting together the anthology that actually the kind of that that mythopoetic thing comes a lot from um robert graves really what mm. the white goddess so you know a parallel text to to lethbridge you know these kind of kind of these, you know, really quite seductive sort of um, confabulations of history through a poetic lens and through words and things like that. So, yeah, absolutely, that's what it is. Um, but, yeah, the slow tape theory, I think, 
you know, I think there's a couple of kind of examples, I suppose, in in English heretic that seem to relate to that. There's a there's a there's a little bit that I'm talking about, um, um, Avebury and and kind of the Kenneth Grant stuff to a certain degree is, you know, when I'm looking at um, looking at places like Orford Ness, which are kind of um, atomic research facilities and looking as if they're kind of these kind of Lovecraftian temples and stuff like that. So there's an element of that. I think in that in that in that particular work, this kind of idea of circular time and uh, and and you know what what the real function of these places are in a quite outlandish way, really. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think I, at one point I was convinced it was a Lovecraftian landing site. <laughs> <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> uh, I feel like in reading your stuff, I I become maybe aware. It's like almost like a mirror of like the. American identity and like uh, of of place and um, the kind of like symbols that we have in our lore, it seems to be more like um, almost archetypally primordial, like grays and men in black and hat men, because there's not this like thickness of hi- history because our colonialism is only like two hundred years. But it seems like with your work, there's like a, a denser feel like it makes everything feel just like these layers stack up and then the 20th century is just putting these meta layers on top of everything yeah yeah but i also noticed you know because i as i said i you know for 15 years or 12 years of the project before i moved to london i was living in suffolk and i noticed this huge overlay between suffolk and 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 these states because the place names are all were all kind of imported into America when the uh, mm. Pilgrim Fathers sailed from kind of Essex and and, and came from Suffolk. So, you, so you've got places called Ipswich and and Kersey, which which were kind of places that are used in which find a general. So, in a weird way, I, I thought one of the most interesting things was, and I probably didn't wasn't explicit enough, was the kind of this kind of weird overlay between this between um, between New England and England, you know, and mm. and. And obviously, the the, the, the kind of the, you know the, the the extrapolation there is is kind of Lovecraft, really. You know, the, you know, uh, and you're right, absolutely. This 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 kind of new hadn't thought about that. I mean, about what you're saying about the thinness of your history creating this kind of mythology of greys and mothmen and stuff like that. And I think it's really interesting that because um, because yeah, that you know. It, certainly in, in in Britain, I was looking at the kind of 20th century eruptions of things that might have been perceived as witchcraft in, in the, in, well, they were, you know, in certain areas of Suffolk, you know, where they went f- searching for strange lights and a century later, they were doing the same things in Rendlesham Forest, mm. you know, and that was a US Air, Air Force base as well. So, you know, ironically enough, they're the yeah. biggest kind of UFO. But, but there's a whole, I mean, this is really interesting because you've also got kind of, the parapolitics there, you know, so so was was Rendlesham, you know, was Rendlesham, uh, a, you know, like a, a, a black ops type thing, yeah, you know, to Jacob's ladder to, type to thing, conceal yeah. what was really going on at Rendlesham, you know, there's kind of this, this, you know, certain anecdotes that, it, that they were actually storing, uh, you know, nuclear weapons at, at Rendlesham, and they were trying to, uh, you know, uh, decoy it. To Green and Common, where all the protesters were. So there's all that, in, you know. So you tend to get where you often where you get this kind of this this para, 
this military sort of occultism, you know, you have this weird layer of kind of um, psyops as well. Yeah. And I feel um, like it's also like, rela- I feel like it's related to like the, the identity thing of like the self-made man in America. And to me there, you see that so clearly in someone like Carlos Castaneda or something, obviously there's always a, a trickster element too. And, kind of a strange interpretation of Native American folklore um, through the settler lens as well. But Yeah, yeah. Castaneda is a really interesting person, um, you know. Um, okay, yeah, he was, a, you know, he was confabulating it, but it doesn't mean it's not true, yeah. <laughs> you know, in some sort of mythic respect. You know, his books are, you know, they. I do think there's a there's a kind of like a shamanic reality that he's he's getting across in these books, you know. So, uh, and it's yeah, as you say, the strong trickster tradition. But you know, Castanada, you know, people like Kenneth Grant were were could see parallels between their kind of bozone and mm. uh, the Nagawal mm-hmm. that's that's in a separate reality you know i think separate reality is an incredible book to be honest you know yeah. and i think i influenced a lot of the stuff i was doing to be honest you know keel and um keel and castamade is definitely in there in terms of the the kind of the element of trickster in because because what was driving the narrative in english heretic was the trickster you know as i said it wasn't it wasn't this kind of cons- a prescribed route i was going to go oh, i'll do weekly then i'll do this it, it happened organically and and i put that down to the trickster essentially you know within myself and within the kind of transpersonal realm really absolutely yeah so i was consciously playing you know I was not consciously but i became aware of it and i probably had given someone like john keel enough credence you know when mm. i wrote those kind of um when i wrote the anthology the anthology obviously was an anthology and and, and i forgot to mention that actually you know keel was a big part of the book you know in terms of his his kind of that kind of very playful kind of disruption of reality Mm, absolutely did you have a, a favorite keel book that you were looking at or um I, well i mean i like disneyland of the gods yeah. you know uh, you know uh, it's one um, of the first books we covered on this podcast <laughs> is it yeah no it's a fantastic book um and I, you know it's a mothman prophecies i find it very eerie something very creepy about that um but i like the fact that he came out uh, there's a guy called david clark who's a ufologist in this country or studies it I think quite skeptical, but he was explaining how kind of Keel was the man in black because when they were investigating the Mothman stuff, they they were doing it as a a journalist sort of journalistic sort of thing, and they went along in their suits and their car broke down, so they traipsed through the fields in their in these black suits covered in mud, or they you know up to their sort of thighs in mud they went to these houses and asked these people you know um you know can we get a cut you know can we get a car fixed and then they went back a few weeks later and and these people reported these these odd events where these men in black turned up with mud all over their things and then he realized that he and and, then and the anecdote there is i created i am the man in black you know i love that this is just so poetic and weird and phil dicky and you know in a weird way you know you are you are, you know, the, the the figure of your who you, who you're hunting. You know, essentially, like it's very strange and yeah. fun. You know, really. Yeah, we're creating a weird like feedback loop there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's great. Um, so I guess the all the uh, 
witch finder general uh stuff in the book got me thinking about folk horror and, and that sort of thing and, and that the rootedness of, of that to place I mean, I feel like we kind of got there just now in the conversation but is there like can folk horror be at least like the English kind of folk horror that that film is a part of can it be like transplanted is it something like because you don't see it coming out in America quite as much this kind of folk horror maybe like what Dave was saying about the the relatively thin history here like yeah. do you think that there's yeah well, I think it's an evolution because um, I, I, I think Robert Eggers' Witch is an evolution of very much an evolution of um, God and Satan's Claw because you've got this quite claustrophobic community that's slowly being driven mad. One by like this, you know, Blood and Satan's Claw is 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 this sort of possessed again. It's like a possessed girl, isn't it? Who might be in league with the devil, and then in in mm. in the witch, you've got. The, kids it might be in league with the, the, the goat and things like that so i think i think i think what happens and i think it's great is and, I, and what i really like about the film is it is it, it, it's developing english folk horror and and realizing that yeah, actually we can transplant it so that's a really good example of a, a really successful um you know american folk horror film that 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 you know it, you know, it's successful in its own right, but you know, it's obviously influenced by things like Paul and Saints Claw. And then obviously you've got also got um in a different context in um you have also got uh Midsommar that was obviously kind of quite influenced by Wicker Man, yeah. but done in a in Swedish community. And I and uh, you know, both films get a bit of criticism, but I loved them both, you know, I thought they were superb, you know. And I I, I you know, I'd much rather these days see new developments of, of, of the genre than you know just celebrating you know films you know in a kind of you know a way that because because I, I guess what I'm saying is that I, I was disappointed the amount of criticism that something I mean summer and to a certain degree the witch got when I think they were great you know I think they were they they, they were evolving and, and and both intelligent films and, and and beautifully done as well you know so um and funny in a weird way, you know, there was mm -hmm. elements of the kind of humour that you get both in A Wicker Man and uh, Blood and Satan's Claw. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I feel like maybe the uh, the amount of criticism kind of speaks to how thin the uh, art house films are that are come, like the amount is um, that, you know, the, the lens was like turned onto those movies because I thought they were you know, great, at least theater movies too. I mean, Midsummer. you can, no matter what you thought of that movie, it was so visceral seeing it in the theater that like the yeah, ups and downs and yeah. everything. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And visually stunning as well. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. the witch. So, yeah. I really like the witch too. Yeah. Yeah. Again, visually stunning, but with a completely different palette an incredibly gray palette, you know, beautiful though. Yeah. Mm. Oh, um, yeah, it's funny. It's funny. I don't really. I, they, for some reason, obviously, Midsummer comes to mind, but for, I, for some reason, The Witch didn't come to mind as like a full core thing. But of course, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I wonder why that is. Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes think we, you know, yeah, because he's so fed the kind of traditional folk horror that it's sometimes hard to see real new folk horror. You know, sometimes right. you know, kind of, it's weirdly blinded by, um, by blindsided by the the fact that. It, sort of folk horror feels that it has to be in the past you know it has to be a film that came out 50 years ago as opposed to today. yeah for sure huh. um i like 
and the, the chapter on on war generally uh all the stuff about churchill i found like oh, yeah. so, so interesting um because i i mean i'm sure it's different uh depending where one kind of is is rooted but he has a certain image here that is i'm sure very different than the one he has over there and so like what was it sort of like uh digging into the, the churchill mythos a little bit yeah i mean again that was like that came out of that i, I started I did this kind of like it was again it was pastiche of kind of like commemorative sort of nonsense you get in in the UK like you know Britain at war Britain at war Britain or caught and then and also kind of the it was one of you know in Britain you get a lot of these kind of horrible sort of channels that are like channel Nazi where there was doing like the occult root, in, roots of Nazism and stuff like that. I just felt I'll come, you know, if I'm going to tackle occult war, let's do it from a completely different angle. Um, um, and again, that happened organically. So the second black plaque I did was for, um, uh, um, uh, John F. Kennedy's brother, who 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 died in Suffolk in in this mad mission where his plane blew up, full of like explosive that, that, that they were sort of trying to radio control towards these bunkers that the Germans had built in North France. Um, so that again, that that black plaque developed organically, um, and and then I got sort of interested in how do I kind of sub subvert the whole idea of Britain at war and Britain at cult. So I did this thing project called Britain at cult war. Was, which was deliberately kind of quite provocative in the sense that I wanted to kind of disrupt our, you know, the the, the kind of the bunting and jingoism and patriotism and kind of like this sort of sad sort of desire to live in the blitz and stuff like that. And, mm. and in actual fact, you know, you know, there's a kind of still a this kind of like mentality that, that kind of is quite deleterious in Britain. So I was kind of wanting to like poke fun at that. In a lot of ways, and and the best person to poke fun and ridicule is, is obviously someone like Churchill. But obviously, then you know, the more I dug into kind of Churchill, I found that he he, he's, he was initiated into druidic order and stuff like that. And, I mean, this is all true, you know. And yeah. so, so you know, so that was obviously like the perfect kind of um, nugget of information to really go to town and just like and just play around with it and turn it around inside out and things like that and see how far you could go. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, it was a, it was definitely a poke at kind of like the way that we revere uh, or certain, certain sectors of society revere and, and kind of wish we were still living in the second world war or feel mm -hmm. we are, you know, um, but yeah, yeah. So, so. But as you say, you know, like, and they were, you know, and then, and then I suddenly, you know, suddenly more I got into it, you know, there's a part of me that actually then starts to believe this, own, my own kind of like kind of um, subversion. You know, thinking, well, yeah, he's a druid. He had like mastery of speech, and he and he, you know, he wrote. He was like a warrior poet, and and he wrote all these speeches. So you know, from a if you really take it as far in a occult lens, then you can see that oh yeah, yeah, he would be like Merlin or something. Like that. <laughs> and then like yeah. these connections between Merlin like losing this battle and going into having this kind of breakdown and going into a forest with a black dog and then Churchill having uh you know been responsible for uh, the butcher of Gallipoli in the in the first world war and then having a breakdown on that and it's like so you know there's part of me that in in this kind of like really hyperbolic over the top way that creates this occult occult um um answer to to 
to, to history, if you like, you know. Um, um, some people take it seriously and others don't, and I don't know whether I do, you know. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sure. have you have you had like an interest in uh, like exotica and stuff too? And maybe this is a way to transition into a mutual interest of ours in Kenneth Grant. Um, when you, when you mean exotica, do you mean like kind of uh, um, like teak, you know, that sort of stuff, like music? that that exotica? Or are you talking about like occult exotica and stuff like that? I kind of yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it's a it's a. I guess it is kind of vague, but um to me they kind of there's this bleed um reading a lot of things like kenneth grant and even um thinking about crowley and kind of the the first touring exhibitions of the egyptian tombs and stuff it seems that like from the top down there's elements of exotica and, and theosophy too there it's there's kind of that cultural appropriation that isn't uh malevolent but it's like kind of simulating a new world um but yeah then there, of course there's a music thing and stuff too because I, I know that you did the um i saw you made a disc that was music of the new isis lodge and, and that, oh yeah yeah a musical a musical possibly only musical based on kenneth grant <laughs> but yeah, it didn't get to the west end unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to old broadway or whatever but yeah that was the idea it was like my idea were you know it'd be um, but yeah, you are right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, Grant's stuff is really kind of syncretic and out there, you know, because he, he's, he's, you know, he, he references like in lots of different ways. It's layered because it's got pulp in there as well. So he, he's he's looking at he's looking at uh, Chinese black magic and uh, he's interested in uh, voodooism and uh, you know uh, hyena cults and stuff like that, you know. And it's this wild kind of like anthropology on top of everything else that's in in grant and i love it for that you know i, I found you know and i think he's a um a xenophile really you know i think uh, you know he as you say it's not a malevolent appropriation it's a love of like kind of uh you know this this, this fascinating um uh you know the, the the kind of pan-cultural elements of of occultism really and you know and tantra as well mm. and uh his writings on tantra are really really interesting um but yeah so absolutely i love that you know uh, and it's a big part of it and it's uh, i think it's also a big part of the astro geographic you know i've tried to very much go on that you know there's a chapter on tantra in there which is kind of i got interested in tantra through grant but you know i suddenly found some other stuff that that you know that the, the grant stuff is sometimes couched in this mat sort of crazy cabala mm. and sometimes and sometimes think, oh this is just all made up but in most <laughs> cases like they bear out the references bear out so there will be like an anthropological route to it um and then it you once you discover that anthropological source to the grant stuff then you can go off in a direct, different direction so he's been found he's been fantastic for that but the way he kind of melds stuff is so strange you know um he wrote a lot about kind of um uh these rituals this guy called john levy did who was an ethnomusicologist who went to uh the bhutan in the in 1970 and recorded the kind of nyamangba and drug sex mm. and these really kind of doomy rituals that sound like swans or something like that and uh um and uh and grant wrote about it and i discovered it 
discovered them through Grant, you know. So he's 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 you know, and then of course Grant takes it further and says actually they're you know they 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 kind of get in touch with Lovecraftian entities, yeah. which is even better, you know. It's just this. Do you see what I mean? It's just this, you know, that that just you know that suddenly, you know, this this kind of like you know anthropology becomes just blown out into into realms of like cosmic strangeness and i love that you know i think it's yeah. awesome <laughs> yeah i agree it doesn't it doesn't uh it doesn't lock it up in a glass case it's very much still alive <laughs> and it out. going out, out. <laughs> sent out into the cosmos <laughs> essentially yeah. yeah um how does one uh find kenneth grant as a teenager how did I? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, I think I probably saw it in the book lists in research books, industrial culture. So it would have been like throbbing gristle, Genesis, yeah, yeah. book lists. And I would have seen that reference. And then there was one countercultural shop in London in Camden that everybody used to go to and everybody I know. It's closed down and that was called Compendium. And I found a copy of, um, outside of the circles of time there in, in the sort of mid eighties. And it, that, you know, that was, that must have been knocking around that shop for about five years without anybody buying it. It was yellowed even by the time I got it, you know, <laughs> but obviously there's no internet to, to, to kind of um, debunk this stuff. So, you know, reading this when I was 17, 18, I thought, oh, this is, this is true. <laughs> you know, this is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is fact. And I'm quite happy. I had that sort of like formative upbringing. So I was sure it, you know sent my you know walked my mind in a quite nice way <laughs> quite a pleasurable way you know um but yeah yeah i think you know i think sadly you know uh, people who try to debunk it you know yeah it, it, it belonged in a time where you know it was fantastical and things like that yeah yeah but, yeah i call it a, uh, yeah, like a yes. para history you know it's like uh it's a, yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah who knows but yeah how can yeah. you how can you um how can you test the reality of it if it's astral you know it's an astral history. yeah exactly exactly yeah. and and you know um i think a lot of you know all the, the criticisms that people make about um particularly grants like sort of correct creative Kabbalah. And I think, well, the analogy again, I give is like the, the bits in Burroughs books where he's cutting up and stuff like that. That's, that's, that's Grant doing the same thing to make these associations to take it on, you know, to create this kind of disrupt the linear progress and find new kind of juxtapositions. And he, but, but whereas Burroughs is doing it through cut up, I think um, mm. uh, Grant's doing it through creative Kabbalah. So he's making these associations between, you know, concepts based on the kind of like Kabbalistic equivalent and then suddenly you, it makes this association and the book goes off in another direction and that's why I've tried to um I wrote an essay for a, a fanzine on coil and that's why my 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 way of explaining why it's, it's important to sit with Grant through those kind of weird chicanes and and, and treat them as if they're, they're you know they're deliberate disruptions to shift the consciousness slightly further Mm, yeah and uh oh, yeah it's funny to for people to read read grant as like a an authority or something what, what, uh, yeah, yeah 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 or like when he's really just like a an experimenter of some kind or absolutely you know, yeah yeah so yeah i always thought that the, the criticisms of him is like inarticulate or you know uh blatantly incorrect it's like well you know so what that's not really yeah but also you know the other thing is that you know 
these books are meant to be read like they're like kind of necronomicons that they're kind of these mm. living texts that tend you into a very strange place and he was deliberately doing this you know when people asked there's, a, there's an interview with him in starfire or something and and and, and um and and he's asked um what is what is the purpose of these books and he's he's to say and he says to acquaint people with very strange states of consciousness yeah, right brilliant <laughs> acquaint them <laughs> you know so <laughs> have you um have you ever tried to extract like kind of the reality of the new isis lodge um i was reading this uh this essay recently which was talking about um austin osmond spare and um kenneth grant's you know real life relationship and kind of hamming it up at the bar late night and stuff um is it makes me very you know reading something like hecate's fountain uh you get very curious at the what exactly like this scene looked like in in this reality you know yeah, I mean that's a really good question. It's a great question, and um, yeah, I know the, this book called Zos Speaks, which is all about um, it kind of Kenneth Grant's diaries about him meeting um, Spare, you know, and Spare was kind of making stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> Steffi, tall tales, and, and, and Steffi and Kenneth Grant, and Kenneth Grant created a mythos from it, which I think is yeah, it's great, you know. Um, but yeah, Hecate's Fountain is my favorite um, Grant book, and and it for exactly that reason, you know, this kind of be, these houses in North London where they were having like coffins with slugs coming out of it and like uh, decked out like the Himalayas and stuff like that. And, you know, um, so, so, um, so he was friendly with a guy called David Kerwin. David Kerwin was a kind of um, uh, tantric alchemist. Um, so, uh, Ker I, I know where Cohen's house was and where they supposedly met, and that's in that's in um, uh, in sort of Houston in in London. But the nature of the rituals, I I suspect these are all done on the astral, really. Mm. You know, there were there were group, possibly group workings to a certain degree, where they would like visualize a lodge and uh, visualize settings and stuff like that and then work it in that way that's my that's my assumption to a certain mm. degree or maybe but you know there's there's hints you know in um on some of the photographs in outside the circle of time you got those little magical mannequins and, and yeah. that, altars and stuff like that so maybe they had like smaller like little altars that they visualize into these bigger scenes or leaves like mannequins and things like that so I doubt whether there were these kind of like Shantak birds on on wires going down some house in in North London, but I wonder whether there was they were like playing with mannequins and stuff like that. And uh, um, uh, but you know they were also using you know they were he was getting his oracular oracular assistants to read um, you know kind of uh, satyroma and stuff like that. So they would be they would be reading these kind of pulp horror fictions in order to see the kind of visions as well so there was a bit of that as well going on as well um but yeah i think i, I my assumption is that it was mainly on the astral or, or but maybe there were these kind of small artifacts that they kind of visual used as in a psychometric way you know like the dagger of boussard or something mm. you know you know cause i talk about that in the astral geographic and it relates to that uh, that <laughs> ritual in yeah, yeah. found to where someone runs out of a lodge and gets the dagger of Boussard and, and bursts this globule of like Lovecraftian icker or something like that. 
<laughs> yeah, it's yeah. insane. Yeah. So whether that actually happened or whether you know they, they kind of like visualized that happening and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, I yeah, have it's to funny believe how he, he pulpifies like the, the the rituals, like the way he writes them. Yeah. So they're cr- they're right. amazing, aren't yeah. they? So they're just it's yeah. like, what this is going on in yeah, I mean, when I again, I read that probably I read that when it came out. So it came out in '94, and I was living in London, that area, yeah. you know. So I was kind of in in South London, quite near where Spare lived. And also, I, I found out a few years ago that I was living sort of two streets away from Sax, where Sax Roma used to live as well. So I was kind of tapping into all this kind of strange stuff, really. Um, it felt very real, you know, and this, these these kind of uh, these 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 strange, you know. Um, black magic cults in London, you know, the coup, cult of the coup and stuff like that. You mm. know, it's just amazing, you know. Um, but, yeah, you are right. The way he wrote these rituals is fantastic. You know, he's, he's definitely got a, a sort of powerful horror imagination there, you know, because they all go disastrously wrong, don't they? Also, it's a tangential tantra. Comes yeah, from, yeah, you know? right, right. <laughs> they all go yeah. wrong. <laughs> but, you know, none. Of, they're all, you know, because the idea of Hexy's Fountains is, is a, it's a book about where, tangents happen you know um so so whether there were any rituals that ever went okay you know and he just didn't put it into his book <laughs> very funny you know it's, it's fantastically you know and you know you can see it in um you know i think alan moore really appreciates kenneth grant and obviously mm-hmm. grant morrison and stuff like that so yeah those yeah. consumed by the old ones poor clanda the, the witch <laughs> yeah. yeah um that's incredible, though. That had that had to be amazing reading that at that time. It was pretty profound. Yeah, right? it was incredible. Yeah, being in London as well, you know. So I'd be going down to these areas and thinking, "Shit, which house is it? Which house?" <laughs> Could still see the slime on the side of the building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was um, was Francis King very important to you as well? Or? Um, not really. No, I mean, I read his on Crowley his biography of Crowley is pretty good but he's you know he's, he's he was quite dismissive of Crowley wasn't he you know um but he's a good biographer you know there's lots of yeah. really interesting stuff in I'm always uh what was his book on Crowley called um the magical something of Alistair Crowley and that's then right yeah yeah there's also so there's some really good stuff like the um you know the the, the the kind of violin workings he did and stuff what's that called? oh yes the, um uh, I'm forgetting her Waddell. name. Yeah, Layla Waddell. Yes, right, right, right. Yeah, so the, you know they they, uh, they were really interesting. You know, the, the, you know, uh, he his kind of information on that gave me a real good sense of kind of you know ritual music and stuff like that. So yeah, I do like, and I do actually really like um, uh, Francis King as a you know he's got a yeah he's a he's a you know he's a smart guy. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought yeah I thought um, he kept it pretty straight in that biography. I like that and. It's kind of like tells yeah. you know the the greatness of Crowley, but also the real life you know trail of of wickedness he left in the people. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so yeah, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I love the book, but yeah, I don't think I don't think he's really been an influence on the project itself. You know, I would say, you know, it's kind of more. You know, it's kind of more psychonauts who are the influence on mm. it. As I said, like John Keel, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, mm. obviously the things you know, kind yeah. of, um, you know, the whole kind of uh, um, his his approach to synchronicity and, and stuff like that. So um, Robert Anton Wilson's a very big influence on on on, on the way it, it, my kind of thinking as well. Philip K. Dick yeah. to a certain degree. 
Yeah, I could see so, that. Uh, I liked how, because I, I wouldn't have, it's not in the in the style. Like Some people influenced by Wilson will kind of like take on his kind of, his thing. Whereas with you, it seems more like the, the mechanics behind how Wilson approaches things were the influence, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, not rather than take on his, his kind of particular obsessions, you know, it, but that's just a, a, you know, the fact that I was reading him at a formative age and he was a big influence and, you know, I like the yeah. way he kind of polarizes you in a book, you know, and I kind of wanted, not wanted to do, I guess you learn that method of polarization through people like, Robert Anton Wilson, you know, to be able to polarise the reader and switch their kind of, you know, view of reality. And, uh, you know, I enjoy that happening in my when I'm writing myself and discovering the stuff. So it's nice to be able to do that, to attempt to do that for other people. And obviously Philip K. Dick was fantastic at that, you know, switching yeah. reality and polarising the reader, you know, polarising their sensibilities quite in, you know, quite quick succession, really. Hmm. Yeah. I also, I noticed uh, Dion Fortune comes up quite a bit um what are your thoughts generally on on her and her influence okay yeah i mean um yeah i wrote about her in this book as well so um you know i was kind of a bit tongue-in-cheek about her stuff she was doing for, for second world war it was all a bit kind yeah. of you know um it was it was you know it was quite ineffective really you know they and quite self-important in a way you know this idea that they're building this cone of cone of whatever it was peace wasn't it you know protective yeah. cone above the country by doing these group workings um so you know i was you know i was a little bit tongue-in-cheek about that in, in this in that book but in uh the astral geographic i'm uh, you know i'm uh, i'm kind of effusive in my praise of a book called uh sea priestess because i visited yeah. the um this place called Breen Down in Somerset, which is a kind of natural promontory. Um, and it's got this amazing kind of Neapolitan, uh, 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 so yeah, late 19th century uh, fort that looks like a military temple, you know. Mm. And it's where um, Fortune based her novel, The Sea Priestess. And, and I think she did an amazing sort of, again, like kind of ahead of the curve, you know, kind of making this kind of connection between these military structures and some sort of Atlantean sort of temple and stuff like that. I loved that. I thought she was amazing. I thought that was an amazing bit of imaginative transformation, you know, ahead of its time, you know. Um, so so whilst, you know, kind of stuff that I think she was doing, you know, it, for the magical magical defence of Britain is a, a little bit... Um, uh, you know, it's a kind of bit silly. I, I, I think, I yeah. think her concept of the sea priestess is brilliantly trans, transported in a very progressive way. You know, and then like you know, coil fifty years on, you know, come up with this idea of snowfalls on military temples and stuff like that. And she was doing exactly this, like in the thirties. So yeah, I've got a lot of time for her. And I actually, you know, I love um, psychic self defense. The book is a brilliant mm -hmm. book. You know, because it's all got. You know, it's the first book I read on occultism. And, uh, and it had all about the cliff off in there, you know, and kind of psychic vampirism, like what's not to like about all those sort of black lodges and stuff like that. It was, you know, it was, you know, she, yeah, it was, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't new age stuff. It's quite dark, some dark ideas in that. So, yeah, you know, I've got a lot of time for her. Mm. Um, yeah, in general. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not a World War II astral protection yeah. well yeah it's it's kind of similar to like the people who are like hexing donald trump when he was uh <laughs> elected there's sort of a 
you know, it's like, yeah. well, <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a little bit self-important, I think. Just, right. You know, yeah, exactly. Way, you know? Yeah. 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 Show, showing up to the wrong battlefield or something, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. They, I think the thing of the second world started because they were meant to meet in London, but the train got delayed, didn't they? So they decided to do like group workings at different locations. <laughs> it's all the, the train got delayed, wasn't it? It's wow. all like... <laughs> That's amazing. Um, t- it's funny too. Uh, have you have you um been aware that like you know the the strange comparison you make with Kenneth Grant and JG Ballard? Um, there's also, uh, I don't know if this is like a current or something, but the, the Penny Royal podcast, um, has kind of like in similar terrain where they talk about Ballard, but also they're dealing with, um, Kenneth Grant's, um, kind of the groups that developed off of him in America and stuff, specifically in Ohio and stuff. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, no, I mean the kind of the kind of connection I made with Grant and there's a, there's a few connections really. Um, they're both really interested in surrealism as a, as a kind of more than a, like a potent sort of form of magic. You know, they both kind of saw it as this kind of, in, in a sense, like a, a kind of magical practice. You know, and so there's you know whereas. And, and and Ballard talks about like kind of nostalgia as like kind of this violently kind of uh, like violent events and stuff like that, or a car that's crashed. It has this kind of dark magic associated with a, a, a sort of dark nostalgia. Um, so when you visit a pound, you could, you've got, got a sense of the trauma there, but it's kind of this this shell. And I thought that's like Cliff Off, really, mm. you know. And, and and Grant looks, you know, Grant's perception of the cliff offers as these kind of shells that hold this kind of dark nostalgia and magical nostalgia and that's where i really saw a really strong connection you know in in the in this kind of deleterious kind of um um you know ruin or ruins of of kind of the progressive science and progressive history and things like that but again like the interesting thing is that the connect that the the, the bit that rejoins them is is um is comes from uh, Robert Anton Wilson because Robert Anton Wilson quotes Ruskin and his concept of ilth, and uh, and I think it was Robert Anton Wilson called it like kind of the cliff off or or, or or said this is you know kind of a deleterious or called ilth like the deleterious sort of byproduct of, of scientific progress and stuff like that. So. Um, you know, and Battle constantly talks about the kind of like this dark magic around, um, you know, uh, um, what's it called, like uh, military sites and things like that, you know, weapons ranges, you know. And, but also, you know, he talks about like kind of, uh, you know, like he's got this weird sort of nostalgia about like um, hotels and all these places of transition, these kind of empty spaces and things like that, which feels very, very like the kind of void that... Um, um, the powerful void that Grant's talking about. Mm. In the, in the oh, for some reason, that just made me think of the whole idea of these uh, like abandoned or uh, unused military installations, coupled with sort of Lovecraftian or it kind of. Have you, you know about like the the Montauk Project mythos? 
Um, not really. No, I mean, <laughs> I've heard the name, but oh, yeah, yeah, just it's sort of like a, a, a on Long Island here in New York. There's a an old military base with a giant sort of satellite and there's just been this mythology built up around it that there's sort of there were these horrible experiments going on about like sending people backward and forward in time and, oh, right. and, and it's like this this aura that happens around like uh abandoned or no longer in use military installations it seems to happen here too you know yeah well i think i think this is where you know these buildings and, and this goes back to the, uh, where it sort of links with the stone tape stuff and, and nuclear semiotics is because these buildings are built with a very specific function mm. but when you when they when they cease to function and when you when time will cease to understand what their purpose was they'll they'll have this kind of mystery it's almost like a religious mystery about them because you know you've lost the kind of form and function of being divorced from each other but they've got these very they've got very specific goals you know and, you know in terms of like a nuclear reactor why you know why a huge encasing concrete and stuff like that <laughs> you know um um why did they build this particular structure you know and, and uh and and i think that's exactly it they that what happens there is that the imagination the paranoid imagination feeds on this kind of literally like a void of 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 meaning or uh, understanding of function and form and function and I, I think we see that in military bases as they get abandoned you know they become like i went to one in um suffolk called bordsey um that was where they had the um bloodhound missiles and now when i went there 15 20 years ago you know it's completely abandoned you can just wander around it and these are like these are like a giant squash courts that um that they used to house these bloodhound missiles and obviously no there. And they actually look more like those kind of Aztec um, arenas where they used to do those, you know, those violent blood sports and mm. stuff like that. And I thought, well, yeah, wow. They, but in actual fact, that's what they are. You know, they are kind of solar temples, you know, and stuff like that. So sometimes, you know, actually the real function, the real mythic function is often like the, the military function. Yeah, yeah. In a way. Yeah, that's funny. I I think the the installation at Montauk was like a a massive radar station, which kind of speaks yeah. to what you're saying. It's blasting the signal, but then becomes like the the inverse, like a black hole for signal, and becomes kind of this Absolutely, like mother yeah. of conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's ones these similar golf ball type installations up in uh, Yorkshire. That are constantly, you know, everybody, you know, it's like the same, exactly the same sort of myth of of kind of, you know, alien skullduggery or whatever, you know, or some some some, you know, sinister operation. Um, yeah, yeah, but in a way, I, I say, you know, that that uh, yeah, the 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 quotation function is actually the mythic function here. Yeah, yeah. these places, if you think about it, on a, you know, a, you know, like on a grand scale <laughs> and uh so in your work like what kind of credence do you give to the idea of an egregore um because i know I've, I've heard you talk about kind of the you know experiencing sync letting synchro mysticism or whatever you want to call it kind of ride in in a poetic way and just kind of like experiencing it novel for yourself but do you do you think that like things can actually kind of like build and 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 
reify themselves as cultural egregores from fiction. I guess that's yeah, I totally do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it happens personally in your own life all, all the time. You know, I think you're always, you know, I think the, the, the imagination does create a kind of um, a form in the future. You know, and and I used to write more fiction, and I, you know, I got to the stage where I couldn't see the difference between fiction and magic in the sense that that. Of, of kind of like patterns and imagistic sort of materializations in reality um but yeah i, I absolutely absolutely think that the yeah, the you know that the, the we do have the ability to in whatever you you don't really need to i don't think you really need to work out what the physics of it is other than to appreciate you know um the reality of it happening but that's more like it's more like a hermetic reality like the alchemists you know um we're aware that that you know the, the microcosm and the macrocosm and that performing an experiment in 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 the macrocosm will affect the microcosm you know uh, and and once you once you accept that hermetic reality then then you don't really need to sort of reduce it to the, the kind of mechanics of how that happens other than to accept that 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 separate reality if you like or that hermetic reality so you know I'm kind of I'm you know, I'm so used to being in that reality that that yeah, that I don't really need feel as I need to explain it in terms of the physics of it, which obviously like things like chaos magic and people like Peter Carroll were attempting to do, which is very interesting. And I, you know, I love his idea of retroactive enchantment and, and mm. this this kind of thing. And I think that's you know that's certainly influential in the way that I think about creativity um, uh, and magic. Um, but but the the other interesting aspect not not quite the idea of of, of these kind of uh, tulpas being generated by th thought forms but the other way that I got a strong sense of the black plaque recipients being like these kind of almost like clown demons that were gradually coming into my consciousness <laughs> uh, you know and they would you know a sense that these were encroaching my kind of my consciousness uh, like sort of clown demons and things like that which is a bit more like sort of I guess Lugotti type thing you know Lugotti's reality really Thomas Lugotti's sort of you know and I, you know I, I you know I think I think Lugotti's very interesting in that idea of you know who's controlling who and who's the puppet and who's the puppet master mm. um and uh, you know there are these encroachments, if you like, um, as well as you know, um, you know, the tulpas or whatever. So it happens both ways. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> is a person the tulpa of a tulpa, or it's tulpa <laughs> the? Yeah. <laughs> um, there's one line in the the collection book that made me stop and think for a while because it's something I think about often too um this idea that most hauntings begin in the future what what kind of led you to that uh that statement um well it's kind of similar to what I was saying you know it's kind right. of the idea of encroachment you know things are encroaching you from from different different planes of time really you know that that the once you step outside linear time yeah you've got all these kind of encroachments but um yeah i mean that particular thing was about um 
So it was interesting. Is it was kind of a, a sort of light-hearted piece about this, this sitcom in in Britain called Dad's Army, which is about um, uh, like the Home Guard who were kind of like like sort of old duffers who were going to protect the country, you know, and stuff like that. They were too old to go to war and stuff like that. And it was a very funny comedy. But at the end of that episode, uh, at the end of each episode, there'd be this quite haunting scene at the end where they'll be on manoeuvre and they hear this air raid siren and these drums roll and things. I always remember being quite spooked by that. And so when I came to write that chapter, I realised that writing this 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 piece was me it was a haunting from the future to my childhood memory of being quite scared and thinking that's because my future self is going to write about it in a quite eerie context so it's it's haunted me from the future and so i got the kind of idea that that um most hauntings are in, you know come from some sort of future or, um, manifestation of it and that's kind of quite like um i guess uh Peter Carroll's idea of retroactive enchantment and shadow time and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and, and the sort of uh, retro causation stuff. That uh, have you read the the books by Eric Wargo? Like that's uh, no, I haven't. No, no. Yeah, time time loops is one. He's in that oh, one. He's right. Yeah, he's approaching it oh, more check of a, those a out. physics angle, but but still kind of he's citing sort of the kinds of occult or paranormal like literature that. Excellent, excellent. I'll check that out. Yeah, you know, this is kind of, as you say, anything that kind of disrupts linear reality. And I think a lot of, you know, this conversation we're having now is making me think about lots of things that interest me that were attempts to disrupt, you know, conventional reality, you know, as say, you know, Cut Up was there to, you know, Burroughs was doing Cut Up. He says, Cut Up, um, cut up reality in the future leaks through or something like that. So, you know, all these mechanisms are ways of disrupting that and to enter a more kind of psychodramatic universe, which, you know, personally really enjoy <laughs> that sort of psychodramatic archetypal, dangerous archetypal reality is the other term mm. that comes from our town, which is, oh. a, is, a, is a good way of terming it as well. Dangerous not in the sense of any kind of political... Trans or political moral transgression, but dangerous as in like a psychic reality, as the one that can drive you mad. You know? <laughs> Tangential yeah. tantrum. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and film feels oh. like that. Film feels kind of like. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying any breaking any ground here with the magic of film, but it's like film is kind of a time distortion where, you know, you talk about Sharon Tate's final film in relationship to the town where Witchfinder general was filmed and it's kind of like again like how does this how does this yellow drive manson story still keep layering like i i you know yeah, i was reading your yeah. story and i saw that clip of the ending of that film 13 chairs and it's like how yeah, how yeah. is it how does this guy look just like manson in the last frame like this is crazy <laughs> it's like, mad isn't it yeah, it's, it's crazy stuff. But it's, I'm actually, um, I'm I'm working on another book for a piece called Enter the Cineplasm, which is um, about kind of the sort of this, the, the kind of sort of febrile 
space between film and reality, the queasy sort of space, which, 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 and I, and I term it the cineplasm, this kind of living entity that exists between film and reality. Mm. Um, and that's based on, I got the concept of the cineplasm from this book, a uh, film called Symbiopsychotaxoplasm by mm. William Greaves, which is an amazing book on the layer of reality and the sort of quantum reality of filmmaking. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sort of going deeper into that particular chapter really from which find a you know this you know i'm fascinated by the, the kind of like a an inner cinema if you like which is a kind of is cinema and our projection of our imagination to into reality and, and things like that so so yeah it's 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 in general you know yeah manson's an incredibly resonant story that seems to keep on giving yeah um but but also you know I, i'm you know cinema itself's got a lot of these kind of stories as well you know yeah because um, it's because it, it is magic you know because they you know the director is performing kind of some strange magic there where he's harnessing all these different different you know correspondences you got actors you've got scene location music you've got the crew and things like that but it, what he's doing is he's he's you know it's a very ritualized ceremonial thing to deliver a, a version of reality um you know so uh, you know it's a very potent form of kind of you know you know manipulating the reality of the, the viewer really <laughs> yeah you must be able to trace film back to theater and then that directly, but it must be like a through a straight through line from film back to ritual, like, mm. like literally, you know. Yeah, there is. There's a. I mean, there's a book about theatre and ritual. But the, the interesting thing was, I went to these caves in near Nottingham a few weeks back. These Paleolithic caves, and they found where they found only the only prehistoric art in Britain. Um, so they had bison and, and things like that, but they had bison. They, they had multiple lines drawn sort of for the back and things like that. And and, and what the archaeologists perceived is that they that, that when they shone, when these were actually film shows, because um, uh, the, the the drawing of multiple lines around the, the kind of body, uh, body um, and shining torches on them to the audience would create this illusion of movement. So this is this, that was the first cinema, really. It's crazy, you know. And I think this is like wow, yeah, yeah the cinematic reality. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yes, huh? Um, do you think anyone's going to do the entire itinerary of your new book? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> they probably won't read the read the entire theory. Well, I got it. <laughs> I think most people it's a coffee table. <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy if they read all the theories, <laughs> but no, I would love to meet someone who did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the stays that would be incredible. Oh my god, trip yeah, around yeah, the world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. Maybe they'll give me a TV program and I can do it. That was the idea. <laughs> Funding it. So we had this guy, we got this guy in England who did this. This was another sort of in-joke for the book. There's this guy called Michael Palin, who who's a comedian with 40 uh, not 40 Towers, Monty Python. He ended up being writing all these travel series around the world, like my, around the world with Michael Palin. So I, I thought, this is I'm like an astral Palin, like an astral plane. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> 
So, um, so what are you working on these days? This new book on cinema you're speaking about? Yeah, I mean that's been going on a couple of years. Um, so I'm just going through that quite slowly. But I'm, uh, at the moment, I'm going to uh, I'm writing some new music. So I've got this book out of the way, and I, I want to go back and um, write some music and um, probably short stories um, for the next year or so. Just writing, um, probably just do a zine of short stories as just to just to get I, I've always enjoyed writing short stories and I never really fancy writing a novel but I've you know I feel I want to write some fiction so it'll be kind of like um yeah who knows what it'll be yeah I've got ideas and there's stuff in the can but it's it's how it gets realized so yeah so there's two or three things on the go so some music this ongoing a cineplasm then some fiction as well yeah and the, and the music part of the English heretic was a, it was a huge part of the project right releasing lots of uh yeah it CDI was yeah yeah i mean yeah i mean yeah it was you know it was until the anthology came out i was probably more known for the music than the writing really um they were equally important really um but i kind of uh, yeah yeah i mean um, I, there's, there's, there's things with the way that I did the music that I think it was slightly over-codified because it all had this literary stuff. So I want to sort of loosen that connection really and, and, and let the things breathe in their own way. Um, uh, yeah, or develop in their own way without it having to tie in specifically with a, a, a narrative and things like that. So, so um, but I, ultimately I think there always will be a kind of, I, I, you know, there will always be a slight narrative to, to the music, but yeah, yeah, it was all, it was a big part for a long time. Yeah, yeah, we did a fair amount of gigging and stuff like that, but um, I got a little bit tired of the gigging in particular because <laughs> yeah, I ended up being kind of like the band manager. Because towards the end, we had like five or six people in the band, and oh. uh, so I'd be driving them there, and then they'd be taking drugs and I'd have to drive them home. <laughs> this <laughs> yeah. wasn't the idea. Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, yeah, so thanks again so much for coming on. I guess we can uh, wrap up there, but I feel like there, we well, just having us. talk it's about a great conversation. so much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was wonderful. Thanks so much for coming it's on. lovely to uh, kind of know that people are, you know, re-engaging with your stuff. You know, yeah. in the states, really, you know, because it's English heretic. But I've always kind of had a really um, enthusiastic and audience in the states. You know, it's it's, it's really good to hear. It's really, yeah, yeah. Thanks. I can absolutely see the connection with you know industrial music and and that. But yeah, the collection, I highly recommend it. Um, some really, you know. You're making these amazing connections, but you're also unearthing these strange connections. I mean. Kenneth Grant and Doctor Who. Who would have thought, you know? <laughs> oh, dear. Planet of the Spiders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, thanks again. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's been a real pleasure to be on. Yeah. And can you let us know when it's out?